Right, g'day everyone. Matty Michael here for part two of the Stress and Seismicity Geotechnical Love Fest episode. Life and Mind podcast brought to you by Entech, who have lent their principal geotechnical engineer, Tom Parrott, to give some great insight into this very important topic in underground mining. Head back to part one if you hadn't had a, haven't had a listen yet. We go over plenty of stuff, the basics of stress and seismicity, what ground conditions induce this, South Africa, how they get to massive depths compared to Australia, why is that? Why is the Campbell region a known seismic area? A bit on block and sublevel cave. And we continue in this part two, the block caves versus sublevel caves. Why did Argyle have so much ground convergence in their block cave? And look, how would you control stress better? Would you choose a sublevel cave or a block cave? We also use the Campbell to North Mine as an example. Uh, when If you're going to predict the new stress in virgin ground developments at depth, how can you anticipate what the stress is going to be like? And how do you meant measure the principal stress directions for any mine? We also go over the ideal mining sequences for stope extraction to control stress the best. And a bit of ground support chat as well. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Go back and have a listen to it and as it'll make part two a lot more sense. Enjoy. get so much stress in the abutment drives the slot drives the, the edges why is there so much stress there it's because we're creating such a large void um and these mining methods are suited to mass mining like you know moving millions of tons a year and because we're moving so many tons we create large voids and therefore these abutments are carrying higher stresses um is that so is that the path where a lot of the stress is getting redistributed it's going around that void in the first place it hits is the edge yeah below yeah. is it right. yeah. i don't i don't i don't mean to dumb down and insult the geotechnical world but no, if yeah. that makes sense <laughs> the more the more we can inform everyone the better and um, block caves are interesting obviously um you know they're very capital intensive there's a lot of money spent up front developing multiple levels from the undercutting drives to the extraction to the haulage and i guess the undercutting is where all the action happens <clears throat> and that's where they start creating a large flat horizontal void to try and induce or make the rock mess cave we're trying to make a void as big as we can so that it becomes unstable and the caving process initiates and that's the whole premise of block caving we want it to cave we want it to fragment you know nice and fine because it means we don't have to blast it and it's a bulk tonnage um rock factory yeah rock factory but because you're we need that natural caving process to work it means that we induce seismicity so we need seismicity to break the rock into little pieces so you make the void so large that it becomes unstable through gravitational forces and arching and then it just starts cracking and they have to be very careful in controlling how they draw the muck or the broken dirt because we want the cave to initiate and we want it to cave evenly. We don't want it to rat hole up one side because then it might sterilize another part of the footprint. So they're really, that's a 
it's a, a real specialist art in getting it to cave and then getting it to contain to cave continuously in a, a fairly uniform manner. Um, is that, and is that similar to how sublevel cave extraction that how they're developed and fired in that sort of echelon pattern to create that even drawer? Is it, do caves work on a similar philosophy? Is it a big, massive computer program that tells you how much to bog from each draw point, draw bell, and and all that? Yeah, well, some ones are quite sophisticated. Like where as soon as you take X number of buckets from a draw bell, you get locked out from that draw bell, and then you move on to the next one and take your X number of buckets out of that one and so on. Like it's heavily controlled because they want nice, predictable production out of these things for years and years to come. Um, so, I mean, yeah, SLCs, we obviously, we, we mine them top down. Caves, we start at the bottom and we juice caving until it, you know, basically caves through the surface or into the um, the previous cave. Yep. Um, and that's where we can also generate like significant seismicity if we're establishing a new footprint below an existing cave when one cave breaks into the other one that's when we can have um, a lot of seismicity and and quite large events to sudden significant changes in the stress field disregarding rock type and contacts faults everything is the stress proportional to the size of the void in the mine um Yes and no. Obviously, the bigger the void, the greater the induced, or sorry, the yeah, the induced stress. So we start with in situ stress, that's the natural stress in the rock. Yeah. As we mine and create larger voids, the we induce stress, um, or we put more pressure on the surrounding rock. And the more we mine, the more that will increase with increasing extraction or mining. Yeah. So there is a link there for sure. Not the only one, but yes. Yeah. And look, we can talk about, um, we talk about Argyle because that's shut. That was well known for convergence, um, drives squeezing the, the, and they had to restrip drives to, um, so they might come into three meters wide, three meters wide, then they'd have to strip them back out to five meters just to get machinery in there as a, I I heard a fact that they were going to make $75 million out of each draw bell. And they had allocated twenty five million in stripping and rehabilitation over the life of the mine. Yeah, wow. that, that was yeah, that was uh, pretty. I'm pretty sure I heard that at the pub. So it's definitely true. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Explain why the convergence there, and I, I'm assuming that ties into the rock type. Why there was such high convergence at that mine, and where for people that don't know, convergence is literally a drive squeezing in, yeah, closing shut. Yeah, yeah it um closes in on itself because of that pressure in the rock. Um, so Argyle is interesting. That's the host rock is a kind of rock called kimberlite. Very, very soft, um, very weak, kind of probably weaker than concrete. Um, nothing like the Campbell of our souls. Um, so the strength of the rock was a big factor there and the size of the footprint of the cave. And <clears throat> yeah, basically, so it wasn't a particularly deep mine. Obviously, they had an open pit and they followed with a block cave. Um, but it's mainly due to the fact they had quite weak rock masses. Um, and yeah, look, I, they had lots of issues up there with um, drive, drive closure. And they threw everything, including the kitchen sink at it, to try and control it, slow it down. 
um, all kinds of weird and wonderful ground supports and we we can't stop it. We can slow it down and, and delay the need to do rehabilitation. But in those kind of situations, it's still coming. It's still going to squeeze and close. And we just try and control it as much as we can. I heard that ground support there was ground support that like, it like wasn't even invented for the rest of the world. Like it was just a next level of what we consider ground support, mesh bolts and dynamic bolts. Like that was just a whole nother world up there, like concrete sets. It was, I've heard it was just on absolute geotechnical steroids. What was yeah. good in to try and, to try and stabilize this ground? Yeah. Lots of all of the typical stuff like uh, fibercrete mesh, high tensile mesh, different types of arches. I know they, um, they use telescopic yielding arches. So the arches would yield and deform as the drive deformed and just try and slow it down. Lots and lots of steel um, to try and control the deformation or squeezing and lots of resin injection back into the rock mass to try and glue it back together. Um, yeah, so I know some people that work there and yeah, certainly an interesting mine for sure. Was and did, was that during the initial development phase of the undercut and the extraction level, or was it once they started caving, block caving, that the stress, the this deformation was happening? Do you know when it was the biggest? Um, look, I don't know the exact time, but certainly I think development they had some issues. Um, the issues probably escalated when they started to undercut to create the initial void, and then as the cave progressed. I guess um, it's just time dependent. Um, I, mean, I don't know the exact time, but yeah, I, I would assume that undercutting would have made things very interesting. And like I said, lots of draw points they just walked away from because they had probably rehabbed and stripped them a couple of times and there's nothing more they could do. They just walk away and, and keep producing from the other the other ones that were still open. Where's all that dirt coming? Where's all that rock coming from? You know, when like you, it converges, you strip it out. It converges, it strip it, it strips it out. Is it like is someone watering it with a garden hose and it's growing? Like where does it? It must be coming from somewhere, or is it? Well, it's just, just is it just breaking up and, and becoming less dense? Yeah, it dilates, so it gets cracks and fractures in it, and so it increases in volume. And um, yeah, basically. The, the volume, of, so it reduces in density, if you want, like you said, because it's got cracks and voids in it now that it's squeezing and deforming. And if you've got, you know, a kilometre of rock on your head, there's plenty of rock to keep filling that void. So. Now, oh, we'll finish on finish our bit on sub-level and block cave, but let's say you had an identical, you, you had one mine and you could either block cave it or sub-level cave, and you get down to 1,000 metres. You're at that point. Would you have more stress if you sub-level caved and then got to 1,000 metres or if you chose to develop a block cave down to 1,000 metres and then started extracting? Is one method better for better or worse for seismicity in identical situations? That's a really good question. I think the advantages of block caving would be you set up shop at one elevation, you put in all of your extraction and then you reduce caving. So you've just got one location to deal with stress, seismicity, apartment stresses. Um, a sublevel cave, you're going to deal with it increasingly, incrementally, increasingly with depth every single level. Yeah. So, oh, no, I think I prefer to just set up shop at one level and, and do it right, do, do it with a block cave. I guess there's economic factors that drive the decision of one over the other. 
Um, but certainly, you know, there's there's block caves that are being mined um, at increasing depths. You know, look at Leinster, for example. It's a thousand meter deep block cave or twelve hundred meters deep. Very challenging. Um, be interesting to see how they're going. Now, Campbell and North it used to be the old long shaft. I think it's called Campbell and North now. Looks about a kilometer deep, and they're developing out off the extremities to the Long Durkin and is it Golden Mile or Golden something? Yeah, Gold, I think it's Golden Mile, aren't they? Yeah. Well, then it's called the Golden Mile or what he so, and that and they mentioned in there. Issue, like they mentioned in their seismicity because it, it is renowned for seismicity. They just said that in the announcement. If you're in a seismic mine that's a kilometre deep, you then decide to, let's assume you're keeping, you're going into exactly the same types of ground as you are currently in, in the seismic area. You're down a kilometre deep like that and you're, and you start developing out into virgin ground. There's no voids directly above you. You've Let's say you develop a kilometre away from where the seismic area is. You're going into virgin ground, but you are a kilometre deep. How would you analyse that as a geotech if you were going to predict will there be as much seismicity as number eight, number one mine, compared to the new number two mine? Well, I guess the distinction, a oh, great question. And the distinction there, I guess, between development and stoping. Development, obviously, creates smaller changes. We're mining smaller volumes of rock and would have less of an impact, say, compared to stoping. But obviously looking at that picture, there's stoping planned at depth. In a situation where we've got an existing mine nearby, looking at how it's performed historically is, is a good indication because we're in the same rocks. There's obviously some slight differences like geometry and perhaps orientation i don't know um but that's a good indicator for us to go back and look at how did it perform in the past how was seismicity if they had it managed in the past and i guess what what new like what new knowledge do we have now what new ground support techniques do we have now to manage the potential risk developing here um so yeah, development, uh, I guess, doesn't generate as much seismicity at depth as, say, stoping. <clears throat> doesn't mean to say we're not going to have issues mining a tunnel at a kilometre depth. Quite often, we won't fully understand what the issues are until we're down there mining it. We can use experience and judgment and say we expect that there might be issues um, related or seismic related issues developing at this depth, knowing what happened next door, um, and you should be prepared. And we can look at things, for, for instance, if there's an existing seismic system um, and stress measurements and rock mass or rock properties testing database, and we could look at um, the, the likelihood or potential for a given rock in with a certain amount of stress to become seismically active and it's also the orientation of that drive if we're developing perpendicular to the principal stress field i.e cutting across it then the chance of experiencing seismicity is going to be greater than if we were developing parallel to that um 
principal stress hill just due to orientation and putting the tunnel in the same direction as a stress hill versus perpendicular um we know that from modeling and experience so and is that and that and that stress field is different at every mine the principal stress direction yes how do you measure it how do you know where it is there's some a couple of different methods out there being used one that's been used for a long time is the hi cell so we drill holes out into the rock and we put in a a little device called the hollow inclusion cell it gets glued in place and then we overcore that it relieves the pressure for the stress and we measure that change on the strain gauges in that cell and we'll do that at a, at a number of locations in different orientations and most importantly at di different depths because we want to understand the gradient or the change in stress with increasing depth um, we also use the acoustic emissions um, or the WASM AE method and that's an indirect method so we can use that from oriented drill core they use a technique where they can create sub cores in a number of different directions from that original stick of diamond core they will load each of these little specimens up until it generates um, micro fractures or acoustic emissions and they do a bunch of complicated maths and basically can tell you what the pressure and orientation of those stress was on that rock in space from a piece of diamond drilling oriented drill okay so is that, and do they is that a process when they're actually drilling it or can you get any bit of core any bit of oriented core so um, what's oriented core how do you get oh it's got the ori line like you drill core and we know exactly where it was sitting in space oh when they pulled it out when they pulled it out so yeah. and that that's important for us to know the orientation yeah they all thought i thought so yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's also some other methods um not used as widely there's the dra deformation rate analysis method which basically they create sub cores as well and 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 um apply a load and, and figure out um what the previous stress was on the rock based on the deformation and loading um and there's there's other exotic ones out there but the main ones we use in australia are HICL and wasm AE methodology, the most common methods. And that, because that'd be the most advantageous to know, because you, before you get down there, you want to know which, so you can design your mind before you don't want to get down there like, oh, shit, I wish you were 40, 40 degrees around. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I suppose it is yes. always very dependent on the ore body orientation, which way you develop. It's, um, yeah, you can't change it, you can't move the ore. I, fig I figured out geotechs are pretty it's pretty similar to surveyors in terms of there are shitloads of very technical items that you throw out there and then we all just leave you alone. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Surveyors have got a damn pat off the end. Oh, yeah, they're a different different breed. They said that about our, you guys too. It will be our jobs to do. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's something like you know stress measurements, understanding your um, stress field, particularly for mines at depth, you know, they can have significant impacts on how we mine an all body at depth. Um, and it's important information to have up front. It's, you know, geotech is a modifying factor when we come to declaring a resource and reserve on deposits. You know, geology drills lots of holes and they've got to understand the grade and the distribution, all that kind of stuff. Mining engineering, you know, they've got to be able to say 
it can be mined at this cost and yes, you've got a project. But geotech is a very important element in any kind of um, reserve, resource and reserve process as well because, you know, mining companies are investing tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to mine these and and if you don't understand how the rock will behave at depth, it can um, result in, you know, really expensive mistakes. Now, I want to talk about, you mentioned it before, mining method and sequence. Yes. In relation to stress. And you did mention, and I want to and tie that into the, the principal stress direction, because if you know you've got high stress at a certain uh, depth and you retreat to a central pillar, can be very, very bad. Yes, I can. Talk about the best way by the book to extract stobes and minimise stress underground. Um, pillarless certainly is very good. So don't leave pillars because pillars will attract stress. Um, mining towards an abutment uh, is another big tick because abutments, you've got all the country rocks sitting out there to accommodate that pressure, the stress, they're pushing out into the country rock away from our key development and infrastructural locations. Um, and top-down, top-down sequence. If if we mine bottom-up, it can be good for a while, but inevitably we'll be mining towards a remnant pillar or some kind of pillar we need to leave in place. Um, and at depth, those pillars can be problematic. So we will have to make them large enough so they remain indestructible, won't go bang. Um, but ultimately, you know, mining engineers, being mining engineers, will want to recover those remnant pillars at some point. So at some point, mines will need to, uh, with increasing stress and depth, figure out through experience or through consultants that they need a top-down pillarless mining method and one that either retreats centrally to the abutments or longitudinally from one end all the way back to the other end. So, so never retreat into a central pillar. You can add shallow depths. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, when, yeah, when you've identified stress as an issue, then that's not a good idea because those central pillars um, are obviously right where our accesses are sitting and um, bounty mine, classic, you know, retreating, um, centrally towards um, the middle of an iron where all the accesses sit and the pillar pillar gateway. So, And now let's also talk about, so top down, center out, and I think I've mentioned it before, that's your, I guess your best your best case, and that, that will require the dual accesses. If you do center out, it's that dual access. You have to come in at either, yeah. so it's double your accesses, double the development because you've got to come in. And you may need a football drive as well. Yeah, yeah. for the thicker thicker ones oh yeah of course yeah yeah um now i've seen it before the end of financial year you've got a nice center out center top down center out method employed at a mine um which has weak ground conditions subject to stress and seismicity end of financial year we need a heap of gold out let's just go skip a level and we'll just start another mining front below and uh, we'll just leave an intermediate pillar and that draw that intermediate pillar just gets up intermediate level. You go back in and it is just you take about three months to restrip it and rehab it. Yeah. What I think we've alluded to it before, but why talk about the importance of how that can be so detrimental? Yeah, I guess 
you know, once once mines are experiencing those challenges and, you know, some mines, they become driven by geotechnical constraints, it's really important to remain disciplined and follow the sequence. Um, obviously, sometimes there's short-term requirements like meeting the um, meeting the budget answers for the end of the year, which, which can be done, but the reality is you're going to pay for that down the track through um, increasing challenging issues in trying to recover that pillar you've created or reducing the recovery. Quite often we just have to write some of those answers down. Um, we were always pretty um, open in these conversations when we're advising our minds ourselves on these matters. Sure, you can make these decisions, but like the chances are you're going to have to write off answers in that remnant pillar because they just won't be recoverable. They'll be too difficult to mine if it is a deep um, and high-stress mine. So where we can, we should just remain disciplined and follow the sequence. Um, but, you know, sometimes we get in a bind, we we haven't met production and we make these short-term decisions. There's, there's always a bit of horse trading and negotiation between mining production and geotech. There sometimes is ways around these, um, but it yeah, it does compromise the situation. But you think of the inefficiency it introduces and you're already, you're behind by that 15 days of all that year, but then you do this, you've got to spend all the time ready to it. And what do you know? You're back behind 15 days the next year and the, you just keep doing it every year and you get in the same spot every year. So it'd be good if you just didn't do it at the first place. 100%. It's the yeah. same with everything in mind. <laughs> Sell Robert Peter to pay Paul, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, we'll finish on ground support briefly. We did, hey, look, go back and listen to the Tom Parrott ground support episode. Uh, that was just sensational. A couple of thousand views on YouTube. Wasn't it? Mate, very popular. <laughs> I think you hurt me a bit of YouTube revenue on that. I really got $3 from it. <laughs> now, ground support in seismic area, as I said, probably the last line of defence to contain seismic and high-stress ground. Look, I even saw the uh, on that Ernest Henry paper, they even showed a um, arched walls for the development profile, creating like a circular profile instead of the normal arch and square walls yes side walls um that's not really ground support but look between yeah it's part of the equation um yeah. increasingly we've seen like there's a number of mines that will apply a a fully arched or a horseshoe shaped profile horseshoe that's the yeah. one yeah yeah um it's got a horseshoe so that having a round development profile um means that the stresses won't necessarily concentrate in one place. So, you know, square backs, straight walls means we can, we may attract or concentrate stresses of pressure in the shoulders. It is, looks good, but... Yeah, good, good for hanging services and stuff. Yeah. But certainly arch profiles um, and reinforcement and surface support are the other keys in trying to, I guess, control um, so as missing all the that release of energy because we need to protect our workers. Um, and what we're trying to do is dissipate that energy. So the surface support, the mesh and the fibercrete um, generally sees that energy or experiences that energy being released first. 
and then that will transfer load to the bolts and the bolts then do the bulk of the work in terms of dissipating energy and that can be through stretching the steel or pulling um, the steel through a resin or cement cartridge or some kind of um, mechanism on the bolt itself that will basically dissipate energy. Remember this from our last episode, They trans- the, the resin transfers the load from the ground to the bolt. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's all part of the system. And each part of the system has to work um, because it, any little weakness within the scheme, that's what the seismic event will exploit, such as poorly mixed resin. If we've got a poorly mixed resin cartridge or a bolt that never got torqued up, then it's not going to be able to um, dissipate as much energy as we want it to. So mesh overlap, having correct mesh overlap. Um, quite often in, you know, back analyzing seismic events, we will see mesh open up like a zipper line right along the overlap um, of sheets and having the appropriate um, surface support. So there comes a point where worldwide mesh doesn't cut it anymore and you need to look at um, surface support other types of mesh that are much stronger and stiffer. So more and more you see mines at depth using chain link mesh and it uses a high tensile um, steel wire and they can dissipate or absorb a lot more energy than uh, well wire mesh and it will survive and then spread or shed that load to the bolts which then do a lot of the hard work in these situations. And in some cases we then need to apply deeper support, long tendons cable bolts to um, make sure you reinforce or anchor back into a solid rock around the excavation. What about shock crude versus mesh for combating seismic ground? Do you need one or the other? Do you need both? Um, lots of theories on this one. And another one, do you put the, is it the mesh on top of the shock crude or the shock crude on top of the mesh? Because I've seen both. So interesting. Um, Fibercrete, shock crude on its own doesn't cut it. Uh, with bolts at depth. So I guess mines will tend to use fibercrete to help maintain the profile um, before meshing and bolting. So in my view, fibercrete first is a good option to maintain the profile and the shape of the arch because if we come in and bolt mesh first, then we can quite often overscale and we end up creating an excavation as a real ugly shape particularly at depth in high stress. So fibercrete first is always good and then mesh over the top. Some mines will then also apply another lick of shockcrete over the top of mesh. And sometimes well, it, it stiffens the mesh. We, we make it stiffer. We still want it to move around and be able to um, accommodate movement or displacement. But inevitably, you'll see a lot of mines will shockcrete the lower walls and that's mostly just for protection from bogger damage because you know, you know, boggers like to get in there and grade the floor with their bucket and rip a bit of the mesh out. Or, so it's just purely to protect that support because in like the, the really deep seismically active mines, like they, they need to install that mesh and bolt to the floor, not just the grade line, they need to go to the floor. And some other, some other techniques we see mines um, using more and more um, falls in and out of favour, but um, de-stress blasting. So that is using blast holes ahead of the development phase just to take the sting out of the rock, just to try and crack it and relieve some of that stress 
remove the stress away from the immediate heating and, and push it further ahead. So is that when they that that puts like six motor holes in the along the perimeter and actually blasts the back of them when they fire that face? Yeah, yeah. So that just helps crack the rock ahead of the next yep. development phase and um, just helps to relieve um, some of that stress that might have been building up because it's always building up as we push that heading forward. Yeah, the mesh shock room first is uh, is definitely the go because it also that mesh then contains, as you said, the shock treat's no good by itself because it will it will crack and move, and but having that mesh below it will catch anything that has cracked and moved like it holds the shock crete scats in a way because that does happen a lot especially if the ground is poor and a lot of it comes down to um the scaling prior to shock crete especially if you're installing gooey bolts because that's something that can really make the whole process a lot easier because if that if the ground isn't scaled before the shock crete you've got more scats behind the shock crete you're trying to get resin bolts in there um, and it's not the fact that they're difficult to get in, you're just promoting the fact that they mightn't be going in properly at all um, if it's impossible to put one in. So scaling prior to shock route is a, is a big thing from the development point of view for a QAQC side of things to make sure the ground support's installed correctly. It is an extra, is, it's an extra stage in the cycle and can slow things up and you need the jumbos, the equipment to do it, but it does make a big, a big massive difference in the quality. Yeah, and the trick is to... In in certain mines where you know you do see a lot of stress around headings and, and overbreak in the development headings due to stress and rock structure, just being conservative with that scaling is important too because we want to try and maintain a nice profile as much as possible. We, we don't want to go and scale two meters off the backs because if it's going to keep coming, it's going to keep coming. Yeah, yeah. in those situations, as you know, the best thing is to stop, don't act scale and consult your shift boss whoever and, and you know nine times out of ten spray it up this hole together mm. yeah it's a, but it was more the one i just found if you didn't do any scaling at all more incompetent ground if you just didn't get that that layer of shit off um no you'd be like no good trying to get a resin bolt in but if you go around i ended up either chuck a reamer or a 64 mil bit on and actually pre-collar every single hole to break that shop crate open and that just gave that chance of the rocks to fall out and you can actually get you can get your resins in a lot it might take you 10 minutes but it could save you four hours of absolute heartache you can get that one for free everyone right mate that's been sensational tom thank you very much for that um oh mate i've been very excited about this i've learned oh just like absolute this is one of the ones i'll listen back to <laughs> oh it's good no it's did we miss anything? I think we covered everything pretty bloody good. Is there any wisdom you didn't get to let out that you wrote down? No, got them all out and plus some. So that was really good, you know. We don't often get an audience as Geotech, so thanks very much. I'm happy to facilitate the medium for you, mate. So look, give give Tommy a give Tommy a personal message on LinkedIn if you're a fan of this. Tom Parrott, I'll send you the link to his profile and his mobile phone number. So <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. good on you, mate. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Cheers, legend. <laughs>